a poet friend that says awkwardness is the only way in. So there we are. We've got our moment in. Um, it is so good to be with you this morning. Can you hear me all okay? Yeah. Uh, we attended this beloved community in 2006 to 2008 when my son, who is nearly as tall as I am now, was just a toddler. And my youngest son, who is now 11, was christened here. And I can still see him, five months old, and he stood up on my knees just after uh, Dave Tomlinson had baptized, poured water over his little bald head, and he was beaming round at everyone in the room. And it's this very sacred moment that I feel like I'm carrying always. Um, and I loved Dave Tomlinson. He used to make me cry every Sunday with that benediction, thank you, of God forgives us, forgive yourselves, forgive others. This place is full of welcome. Thank you for holding the door open still. We've just come from Iona, which is a rather wonderful place to recover from jet lag after a flight from the northwest corner of America. And I actually sat down to write this talk in a tiny little room at the entrance to the Iona Abbey, where I'm told it was the job of one of the monks to sit and watch for visitors on the road so as to be ready to jump up and make them welcome. It's a very small, round room, probably about the size of that table there, with a single wooden chair looking out through leaded glass windows with ferns growing out of the cracks, which is a fitting place, you would think, to write a talk for Trinity Sunday. But I should confess here that I'm a missionary's daughter, which means that I'm not always sure how to hold or how to relate to the religious certainty and symbolism of my childhood. It feels a bit sacrilegious to confess to on Father's Day, but the concept of Father God is a tricky one for me. I'm grateful to my Father for the gifts he was able to give me, and I applaud all of you in this room who are fathers or father figures, my own husband among them. Although I did forget to wish him Happy Father's Day this morning, so there you are, Happy Father's Day, a bit late. <laughs> Thank you for the love and the care that you show to the people, the children in your life. For a child to go through the world knowing that they are loved, that they matter, is a gift beyond all reckoning. But if the concept of Father God is tricky for me, perhaps the concept of Mother God is tricky for you. So let's step aside and imagine a role that's beyond feminine or masculine, although it contains elements of both, the Creator God. The Creator God, the first figure of the Trinity, is one that for the most part I find I can say yes to. My father organized reforestation projects in Haiti and is to this day a farmer. So the idea that everything began with a garden and that we're to care for the earth is a deeply ingrained truth for me. But the language I often heard about this relationship Growing up in the church is echoed in that translation, the English translation we heard of Psalm 8. What are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? For you made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, all animals of the wild. When we were putting together the order of service for this morning, we intentionally looked for a translation that did not use that problematic word of dominion over the earth. But the other choices were not much better. 
In the, both the Caribbean, where I grew up, and in the Pacific Northwest, where I live now, scriptural passages like this one were used, taken out of context, and used to justify a manifest destiny that has led to profound human and ecological devastation. Communities torn apart, forests raised, quarries cut into the bones of the earth, rivers contaminated. There's so much loss in the long history, interwoven history of colonization and missions. It's a deep sorrow. As a missionary's daughter, I live with the knowledge that despite all the good we intend to do, we have also done so much harm in the name of Christianity over the centuries. And yet, here we are today, holding this sorrow alongside the possibility that there is even so good to be found in this story, in this symbol. For myself, it was a huge relief when I learned and heard an interview with the Hebrew scholar Ellen Davis, and I learned that the word that we often mistranslate as dominion or to rule over should be more accurately translated as skilled mastery among the creatures. But it wasn't until I heard another parallel creation story about a garden that I felt as though I could once again place myself in that story. Two summers ago, in the part of Oregon where we live, a teenage boy threw a firecracker into a dry gorge during an unusually hot summer and created flames so intense that burning embers flew two miles across a river and thousands of acres of wilderness burned. We're living in a moment in history when the fragility of this earth is increasingly apparent. Floods such as the ones that we saw across the UK this week, hurricanes, tornadoes. We were among those who evacuated from the fire in the Columbia River Gorge, although our community was for the most part spared. I ended up writing about the fires the following summer, and in the process I interviewed an Owasco oral historian and elder whose people have lived in, along the Columbia River for 10,000 years. And he told me a creation story that he's given me permission to share. In the beginning, the Creator made the cloud people, the wind people, the tree people, the fish people, the winged people, and the four-leggeds. All of these were given care for the last to be created, the two-legged people. For we set down last on this earth by our Creator, are sustained by our fellow creatures. We rely on the rivers, on the trees, on the earth, on the animal people for our survival. And in gratitude, we in return offer them our care and protection. We who were set down last among the creatures were never intended to desecrate our sister, Mother Earth, in the lovely words of St. Francis of Assisi. We are to embody skilled mastery among the creatures. We are to care for all created beings who are themselves a reflection of our Creator. So that's part one of the Trinity for me, the Creator God. Part two of the Trinity is the one that I would describe as Jesus the Troublemaker. At least that's how I came to see him 
reading the Gospels over and over again in my 20s, trying to decide whether I could still hold on to any part of this faith. Where was Jesus to be found in the Gospel stories? Turning over tables in the temple when religion became too entwined with power and privilege and commercialism. Reminding his listeners that God cared deeply over the fate of those on the margins of power, those who are disproportionately impacted by the march of empires. Jesus, the one who is happy to break the rules to make a point about what mattered. Some part of me suspects that Jesus were alive today. He might just be out blocking traffic with the Extinction Rebellion. But what I don't see in Jesus is any stridency or self-righteousness, characteristics which I confess I am often all too guilty of. Because Jesus, the troublemaker, also made time to laugh, to be with friends, and is remembered as saying, come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I know as a missionary's daughter that I'm certainly capable of acting as if this earth were mine alone to save, but it isn't. I've spent too much of my life trying to convince myself and convince others that I'm one of the good ones, but I'm starting to believe there aren't any good ones. There's just us, flawed and fumbling, capable of doing harm without ever intending to, and also capable of great kindness and surprising acts of courage, which, if we're lucky, might just be enough. We all belong here on this battered, beloved Earth. And it is in the ways that we're all connected to each other that I see most clearly the third manifestation of the Trinity, the one that my friend Elise, a retired priest in Oregon, calls Her Highness the Spirit. I want to tell the story about trees to illustrate how I'm starting to imagine the Spirit. We were in California a few weeks ago to visit my uncle, and the place where we were staying is along the wild edge of the northern California coast, framed by these iconic twisted cypress trees that have been bent sideways by the wind. And though only a few remaining trees were scattered among the vacation homes, you could tell that the whole peninsula had once been a forest, with gnarled branches leaning into each other and the roots intertwined. Have any of you read a book by a German forester called The Hidden Life of Trees? It's really beautiful. Research is just now giving us insight into what trees have known for millennia, how to share resources. I remember learning as a kid how trees could convert light through photosynthesis into energy, but what we're just beginning to understand is how they can exchange that energy as sugar with threaded mycelium networks and tiny microscopic creatures right under our feet, invisible to the human eye. If a tree in the forest is sick, those that are healthy can share their resources. If a tree is dying, it can take all of its accumulated wealth, a lifetime of breathing in sunlight, and distribute that energy among the other trees. It doesn't restrict its generosity to its own species. The tree people are so much wiser than we understand. 
And the human brain is another mystery that we're only beginning to understand. But it seems as if what happens amongst the roots of trees is quite similar to what happens in the human brain, in the net-like branching of neurons. And when connection or attunement happens between people, it is as if, like the roots of trees, we have exchanged energy between us. And that jolt of electric joy, that holy connection, reminds me of what's been described by the American writer Sandra Cisneros. She says, think of someone you love, whose face is in the sun, someone who loves you and is sending you absolute love. Then inhale and send it back. That's it. If you want to close your eyes and do this, you're very welcome. Picture them smiling. And when they smile, you inhale their love. And when you exhale, you send it back. That's it, says Cisneros. That's the Holy Spirit. It's very simple. She says, I don't know why religions make it so difficult. I'm quite sure that I've run on too long, as I was afraid I would, but I want to close with the truth that I'm reminded of every time I visit Iona, which is only twice now, but it's a place that stays with me. I find myself very often these days worrying about this earth, worrying about our fellow creatures and about the future that the children who are alive today will have to face if we don't alter our course. But when I stand within the stone walls of Iona Abbey, which was torn apart during an era of violent upheaval and rebuilt many centuries later, I'm reminded that the story is long. This history that we share is so very messy. And if hard times are coming, which they may well be, we're at least in good company. The creator who set us down last of all the creatures and gave us care of our kindred is with us. Jesus, the troublemaker, who is gentle and truthful and fearless, is with us. Her Highness, the Spirit, who moves between us like light, like energy leaping between tree roots and synapses, is with us. May we remember always that we are not alone.